tonight we turn once again to the book of 2 Kings. So we'll look at 2 Kings. Of course, next week will be our candlelight Christmas Eve service. So we'll take a break from 2 Kings and conclude that. Not the last week of the year, New Year's Eve, we will not have an evening service. Uh, so the first Sunday in uh, the new year, we will pick up this story of Jehu and Israel. But we're in chapter 10, beginning with verse 18. And I have to say, as we look at this narrative over these few chapters about Jehu, we haven't really seen anything like Jehu, at least not for centuries. He is a very unique individual. He is called by God to be an instrument of judgment upon God's own house. Uh, that is the, the royal family of Ahab. He has been called uh, particularly uh, to basically destroy Ahab's family and their hold upon the royalty and the leadership of Israel. But Jehu also is very zealous and seems to go even above and beyond what he has been called to do. But he is on the one hand God's instrument. On the other hand, he is a flawed instrument like we all are. And it's with this in mind that we pick it up. Jehu, this very interesting conundrum of a leader in Israel. By this point, he has already uh, taken out and assassinated Joram and Ahaziah, the kings of Israel and Judah. He has taken care of the whole family that has killed off all the family of Ahab, all their leaders and confidants. They have also uh, taken care of Queen Jezebel. And with this, he has not stopped there, but we pick up the narrative with this zeal in verse 18. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a, lot, a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And he said to him, who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offerings, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. We're going to stop there. Not because it's always the most convenient place to stop, because that's where I want to stop. We're going to stop there. Let's bow briefly in prayer.
Lord, this is your word. There's much to learn from it. We pray that your spirit would be upon us and with us, that we might indeed learn from your word, grow by it, and Lord, apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts and the words of my mouth might be pleasing in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, if anything amongst us is not consistent with these things, Lord, let it pass away. We pray in Jesus' name. Of the many methods of dealing with the enemies of God's people, one of them is infiltration. I've had the privilege of meeting many people now from former communist nations in Eastern Europe. And it was evident that during the time and the rise of communism that they did not like Christianity, did not like the church, they considered it to be a ripe ground for rebellion against the communist and atheist regime. And so when it came to different countries, whether it was Russia or Romania or Ukraine or Latvia or other places that I've had the privilege of meeting people that were from those places, I understand that one of the ways in which they would try to keep Christians under control is this. They would have some people act as if they were interested or curious about the church or even act as if they were believers so that they could infiltrate the worship services. And then if they saw anything that they thought was dangerous to the communist regime, they would report on the people. And next thing you know, the pastor or other members of the church might be arrested or disappear. In fact, it's led to a whole generation or more of people who not only don't trust anyone, they don't trust anyone. They don't trust even the folks that they worship with necessarily unless they get really close. In fact, it's very difficult, particularly for older individuals from these backgrounds, to trust anyone. To pose as a believer in order to expose them? What a horrible thing to do. And this is a method that takes place even today. Even today, not just in communist countries, but in our own country. There are those who will act as if they're a part of a particular business to infiltrate a business for business espionage. There are those in politics, we know, spies we call them, who will pose as one thing but be another just the other day. There was an exposure of a spy from Cuba, someone who had been a spy for 40 years, who was still serving in our government. And of course, also now in journalism, for good or bad, sometimes to expose those who do certain things, they will pose as one thing in order to expose the other things that they do. Well, for Jehu and for believers today, does the end justify the means? That's really a question from this particular passage, isn't it? What is the good thing that results from this passage? The good thing is Baal is wiped out. And in fact, we will see it really is in Israel. But how does he accomplish that wonderful end? First of all, he accomplishes, accomplishes it by gathering all the servants of Baal together. And then he participates in the worshiping that goes on in the house of Baal, and then, of course, he begins exterminating the worship of Baal altogether. This, again, is just a 
continuation of Jehu's zeal. Remember, he's now killed two kings and a queen and 70 descendants from Ahab, sons and grandsons. He's killed all their advisors, their priests, their confidants, uh, close friends and leaders that were in Samaria and Jezre uh, Jezreel. And now here he's come and he's told uh, Jehonadab, this conservative man, uh, son of Rechab, to, to come and see the zeal that he's going to take place. He wiped out all of those who remain to Ahab and Samaria in verse 17, and then in verse 18, he's going to deal with the false religion. And on the one hand, I have to say I'm glad he's going to deal with the false religion. It needs to be dealt with, especially in Israel, God's chosen nation, God's people. But how is he going to do it? How, are, how is the best way to accomplish these particular things? Well, he decided the best way in this particular time was to use deception for the gathering. Here's what he does. He makes an announcement. They didn't have an, uh, an intercom system at the time. But here he had proclaimed throughout the territory. Obviously, this means messengers probably went from town to town throughout the region and Samaria. And he says, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Now, they didn't get the next verse that we have, or the next section of the verse. We get the commentary that the author gives. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. There were practical benefits for doing it this way. When the people who worship Baal heard that they were going to have a continuation of Baal worship, I'm sure that they were excited. In fact, they were now going to be in the inner circle, at least so they would have thought, under Jehu. They thought, boy, in Ahab it was established, now we're going to be the cream of the crop. And they've seen the zeal of Jehu, how he's wiped out all of Ahab's house and all of his supporters now here are the religious supporters of Ahab thinking that they will be spared. And so the practical benefits are these. A great response. They come. But does this not bring up theological questions? After all, what does such an announcement do? There's a mixed signal to the nation. When he makes that proclamation without anybody else knowing exactly what was going on except his inner circle, his confidants. He says, they have served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. What about those few of the remnant remaining who follow the Lord? What are they thinking? It's a mixed signal to the nation because they don't know he's deceiving the Baal worshipers. They don't know his intent here. By this time, all they've seen and perhaps many of them, all they know about Jehu is his military prowess and his violence against the house of Ahab. They have no clue as to what's taking place. And to tell the nation that you're going to serve Baal much is problematic, I would think. And of course, this is a use of deception to fight idols. What are idols? They are objects of deception in and of themselves, aren't they? These idols took 
upon them, at least by the people worshiping them and setting them up, they took God-like qualities of provision and satisfaction and sovereignty and all those things. The things that belong to God were applied to these idols. The whole concept of idolatry is to be deceived by the reality of a God who is sovereign and providential. And here in this way, to deceive these followers of an idol in order to defeat them is really, in one sense, ironic. But not only this, there's also irony in the warning that he gives. Here's what he says, whoever is missing shall not live. Well, whoever comes won't live either. The irony here is he's saying, if you don't come, I'm going to come get you. But really, he was gathering them together to off them, to kill them. So here, the gathering of these servants of Baal was all under deceptive, cunning influences. And it was successful, at least from what we can read in Scripture, as far as worldly standards go. Jehu sent throughout all Israel, all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. Amazing. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. It's kind of interesting. The words here is from one mouth or edge of the building to the other mouth or edge. It was filled to the brim, we might say. And so here it was, full of his servants, for that's what the word worship here is, those servants of Baal, and was filled all together. The whole house of the temple was filled, and of course this house was the house built by Ahab. Ahab was the one who built this Baal temple. It says that back in chapter 16, I think verse 32, that Baal set up this house and began to worship in this place. And so here all those who religiously followed the terrible religious practices of Queen Jezebel, who brought the Sidonian Baal into the nation, and even the central part of the worship of Samaria, they were all there. The gathering was successful. What about gathering? What about how we do things? What about whether or not the end justifies the means. I grew up, first of all, in the upstate New York where we had a small rural church. My dad had a double charge as a pastor. He served one church out in the country and one church in town. And I remember the church out in the country, that's where we lived. And for whatever reason, it was difficult for them to really make the church go financially. And so every year they would have a bazaar. Now, it might be bizarre to think about bazaars. I had no idea what a bazaar was. A bazaar evidently was a place where you buy things. So people would bring their crafts and other things and set them up in the fellowship hall or wherever it was in the church, maybe outside. I don't remember all the details. And they would sell things, and that particular money would go towards the general offering and budget of the church. And, you know, we had a good time together. They did different things with it. And I remember some of the things they set up with this bazaar. I don't remember whether it was an annual thing or not. I remember one particular event. But I remember reading a book years later. It was by Jay Adams, a Reformed Orthodox Presbyterian pastor and professor. And in that book he said, 
Why should a church fund itself by the pockets of unbelievers? And I thought about that. If that church could not make it on its own, did they think it was really right for them to be able to make their budget because unbelievers came and bought their property? There was a question about this. And it convicted me to the point that I understand now, obviously, we can't ever determine whether or not somebody's a believer when they give money. We can determine sometimes if somebody wants to donate a big prize of money where it came from, and sometimes because of where it came from, we might want to reject it. But do we really trust that God will provide for the financial status and security of the church? That had an impact on me as a pastor when I came to understand, does the end justify the means? If we struggle to make it financially, do we turn to the world to supply our needs or do we turn to God and his people to do that? Here, Jehu, he had a good intent to destroy the worship of Baal, but was his procedure the best way to do it? Well, the next thing that happens is the worship experience. Here they are in the house. They're here worshiping Baal. Verse 22, Jehu said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments, the garments for all the worshipers of Baal. In other words, he's saying here now, there are no Yahwists allowed, those who follow Yahweh, the true God of Israel. So there's this distribution of the garments. Now it's kind of interesting when I think of garments in scripture, sometimes I think of the garments that are mentioned, the robes of righteousness and the robes that we get when we become believers. And so here in this outline I put together, these are the distrib distribution of the garments, not of salvation or redemption or of righteousness, but of condemnation. These are the garments they're wearing in this celebration. They probably were colorful. They probably indicated some kind of symbol or presence of Baal on them. I don't know. But they marked them out as those who were believers in Baal. And they used these in worshiping him and in offering sacrifices to him. And so this, these are brought out. They're all put on. So all these people throughout this building packed from one end to the other. This is, this is the ultimate worship service where it's so crowded that is full to the brim. And Jehu goes around to the, the people in the house with this man, Jehonadab. We were introduced to him last week, the conservative element in Israel, one of the ones who he and his family would even keep some commands even through the entire time period of Israel into Judah before the destruction of both nations. And he says to the worshipers of Baal, they put on these garments, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. This is the determination that only Baalists are present. No Yahwists, no believers in Yahweh, only those who follow Baal. And then this happens. Verse 24, they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Who is the they here? It's all the Baal worshipers. And assumedly it includes Jehu. Is it ever right as these actual cultic practices begin 
Is it ever right for the leader of God's people to go in and participate and offer these sacrifices, even if he intends to wipe them out by this practice? God ever designed for us to offer a sacrifice to an idol. This is witnessed by Jehonadab, son of Rechab, evidently. Remember Jehonadab or Jonadab in another place? Remember, he is, he is someone considered very conservative in his views. In other words, he was someone who was very moral. In fact, they were those who followed the practices not to drink alcohol, to abstain from certain things, and to live a very moral lifestyle. In fact, they were living a, a nomadic lifestyle, the kind of the old Yahweh followers living in the desert kind of lifestyle. And so Jehu was evidently recruiting this man to witness his zeal for conservative religion in Israel. And so he witnesses these things, but he also witnesses the fact that Jehu was willing to offer this sacrifice before these people were slaughtered. The sacrifices and the offerings, it says, Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. And he says, So as soon as he made an end of the burnt offering. The sacrifices and offerings were offered up. By this time, the secret cunning is completed. You know, this was just Jehu in his role as a deceiver here. This is just him and his role to get them to understand in false ways that they really were in his good graces so that none of them would try and flee. I understand why he did it. I understand why he did it because we all have a desire sometimes to be that actor who can persuade someone of the role that they're playing. But aren't there real problems with this worship? about taking part in the very thing you condemn. Can you imagine that if we discovered a wicked practice in our particular church, if, if rather than just declaring the truth on this matter and asking people to repent of these particular things, instead we called a meeting so that all those who followed this practice would come to this meeting and we would kick them all out of church all at the same time. That's what this would be like. It's a little disingenuous maybe. But he sure got a great, a great result, didn't he? They were all there. They all came. All of them stayed there. It seems as if prior to this slaughter that everything is going according to plan. And then the extermination begins. Here are the orders of execution. He stations 80 men outside. In other words, here, I don't know how many entrances there are. At least we think at least two, mouth to mouth or brim to brim. And so here they are, 80 individual soldiers out there. And he says to them, the man who allows any of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. It's literally a life for a life. You let one of these go, you'll be executed for insubordination. And, of course, the words here, go in and strike them down, verse 25, let not a man escape. Let no man escape, not one. They're to get rid of every single last one that's in that building. And, of course, Jehu's in control. I'm sure by this point there's a lot of fear for Jehu as a leader. A lot of blood has been shed. 
And the actions of this execution are like this. So, when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. In fact, the Hebrews seem to indicate they actually went out as far as into the city to make sure that everybody from Baal had been executed. They brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. So here they are, first of all, the slaughterhouse here. Imagine everyone in the building dead. And of course, what happened to the place? It became the lowest of the low, became a sewer. From being a slaughterhouse to now a sewer. From being a temple to a slaughterhouse to a sewer or a latrine, a place where people use the bathroom publicly. This is the lowest humiliation that can be. This is where Baal deserved to be. This is a good result. In fact, the standing stone here, or the pillar, the actual representation of Baal, however that looked, we don't know exactly how these things looked, it was taken out and it was burned. In fact, we kind of get the indication what they would do because it was an actual stone, is they would heat it up really hot and pour water on it until it cracked. And they would do as much as they could to burn any resemblance or anything off of that stone and they did so. The standing stones became ashes. But what about all this? The good results. The theology of execution, on the one hand, we can look at the zeal from a passage like Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, it says that if even one of your relatives, a father, a son, a brother, has you go and worship gods that you did not know before, you're to Execute them. You're to kill them. And then it says, if there's a city amongst you in which some scoundrels in the city have the whole city worshiping a foreign god, you are to go and investigate the matter. And then if it's true that this really is the case, you are to wipe out that city by burning it to the ground, even the cattle and everything in it. You are to take all the plunder of that city and pile it up and burn the entire thing. That's zeal. But in this case, is the zeal benefiting Jehu or is the zeal benefiting Yahweh? After all, there are two things going on here. One is Jehu fulfilling the prophetic mandate he had to attack the house of Ahab. Now, could we perhaps extend that to understand the religion of Ahab and the priests and the Baal worshippers? Obviously, they were out of place in the nation of Israel, and they had to go. But the zeal, according to the example that was set before him, was in the prophet Elijah. Elijah, when they gathered all the prophets of Baal after Elijah called down fire from heaven, he had all the prophets gathered up after he asked the people of Israel, who are you going to follow, God or Baal? And he had all the prophets gathered up for slaughter. But what did Jehu do? He gathered all the prophets all the servants, all of those who worship Baal, all together without giving any of them a chance to repent, perhaps. And he killed them all. Did he do this so that God would be glorified? I hope so. Or did he do this so that he could maintain control and influence as the new king of Israel? 
results are this. They're great. Baal was gone from the kingdom of Israel for good. In fact, I read through the rest of 2 Kings here when it comes to Israel, and you know Baal is not mentioned again from this chapter until chapter 17 in Israel. It's mentioned in Judah, but it's not mentioned in Israel again. Now, there are other sins. There are other gods, particularly the gods of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the golden calves that he had set up so that people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem and worship the true God in the temple. They would rather stay in Israel, so they worship these false gods where Jeroboam said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, and these were the things that they worshipped. But Baal is not mentioned again until chapter 17 when we understand the reasons by which God destroyed Israel. One of those was Baal and Asherah worship. Results are wonderful. Bye-bye Baal in the land. Gone completely. But what kind of zeal do we have here? Is this the way to do it? We'll find out in the next section, next year, when we look at this. We'll find out that there are some caveats to this. But do the ends justify the means? What if our goal is to fill the church full? We even sing a hymn that says we long to see our churches full. What if we did whatever it took to get them in the doors? What if we try to soften the message of the gospel so that we can just get people to hear the real gospel when they come in, maybe deceive them with gifts or with other things, and then just get them in the door so that they can hear the gospel? Or what if we just do whatever we can to develop a good reputation in the community so that then we might have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel? kind of zeal do we have? What kind of zeal do we have in our family? I have to ask that question. Dealing with now grown children. How do I relate to them what is true? Do I confront them in a closet? Do I impose upon them all my customs and traditions in addition to all the things I know are true in scripture? Do I berate them? Do I plead with them? What do I do? How do the ends take place? I want them to follow the Lord. But what are the means by which we do that? This is so important when we understand scripture. Jehu here, in one way, is painted as a good guy. Four generations are going to sit on the throne of Israel. And there's not a lot bad said about Jehu directly in the scripture. And yet at the same time, he's a flawed sinner who used difficult, strange, and questionable means to accomplish the purposes of God. When we say bye-bye, Baal, in our lives, are we doing things on the up and up? Are we glorifying God, or are we glorifying ourselves? That's the question, I think, tonight. Let's pray. Father, there are so many ways. When I look back, there are so many times and ways that I've done things in my life, in my family, even in the church, where I've done things to get my way or to get the right way for the wrong reasons. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. Help me to mature and grow in these areas. Lord, help me to have zeal for you. But a zeal not only for you, but a zeal for your righteousness and your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.